Hebrews 11, I think it's, uh, yeah, 1007 in this Bible, like this one here. I want to read uh, some scriptures out of Hebrews chapter 11. And if you don't have one, you grab this in front of you and you can turn to 1007. I appreciate the kind remarks uh, from Brian. Thank you very much. It's great to be in the family here, isn't it? Great to look back and see God's faithfulness to us over the years. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you on uh, this topic of grace. And there's there's a, another side to that which has to do with faith. Grace and faith go together. And so today, I want to talk to you about faith. And we have a definition of faith right here in the beginning of this chapter. And then, lest we somehow get a a misinterpretation of what that definition actually means, there are the stories of several people following it that illustrate this is what it means to have faith. This is the definition of faith, and this is what it looks like in the lives of these people. And so throughout the whole chapter of 11 of Hebrews, you have the stories of people who are commended for their faith as a representation of this definition. So let's just look at it. And and I'll skip around a few scriptures, because it is a fairly lengthy chapter. But beginning with verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this starts with this definition. What, What is faith? Well, it's the assurance or being sure of things hoped for. And it's the conviction of things that you don't see yet. Because once you see it and have it, you don't need faith anymore. You have it. Got it? So that's what that means. And then it says, for by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was, was not made out of things that were visible. And then it begins these stories, like, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable uh, sacrifice. Uh, And just to skip on down and say uh, verse 6, for instance. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out from a place to receive an inheritance. And he went out. He didn't know where he was going, but he just went because God had called him. And by faith he lived in the land of promise. Verse 11, By faith, Sarah, that's his wife, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so, and if you read on through through this entire chapter, you continue to find these stories popping up, some of them pretty big, like by faith, Moses 
when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And uh, so then you have this amazing story of, by faith, people cross the Red Sea under their leadership. And then, and then, in the latter part of the chapters, it mentions several people by the name. Just there's not enough time instead to tell all of their stories. You can read them for yourself. But I want to mention them. He said, and and people like David and Samuel and Gideon and Barak and Samson and and then a lot of unnamed people who became stories of faith. Now Ephesians two eight uses the, these words grace and faith together. It says by Grace, through faith, you have been saved. And so a few weeks ago, I talked to you about grace. How uh, grace is God's favor, saving us. It's not any way that we can merit ourselves, but it's through faith you've been saved. And then he says, this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So as a result, no one can boast. So both grace and faith comes to us as a gift of God. Now, there's a lot of, I think, really... uh, bad theology as it relates to uh, faith. And so I want to hopefully bring some simple clarification that I think ought to, ought to help you. What is faith? Well, the comic strip B.C. Ever read B.C.? B.C. says, faith is a condemned prisoner eating his last meal and asking for a doggy bag. <laughs> well, that's not bad. But I think Hebrews has a little bit better when he says, basically, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, a lot of people say Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of like the hall of fame of people of faith. And uh, I'm not sure I like that description. I mean, there's there's a definition of faith at the beginning and then the stories of all of these people. But it's almost like, okay, these are the guys who got in the Hall of Fame, but most people don't get in the Hall of Fame. It's kind of like sports, baseball or something. Not everyone gets into Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, A lot of people don't get in there, and so they're just the select few. And it's almost like saying, okay, they're really, really special people that have this faith that God's really happy with, and so they get in, but the rest of them uh, don't get in. That's That's not the purpose of Hebrews 11. It's not... A, a, a chapter about the hall of fame of the elite people who got in because of their faith. It's simply a definition of faith and then some stories to help us grasp what that means. And, and let me tell you what it means to a large degree. I'm looking at the hall of fame of faith. Because you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe God. And I wouldn't be here. If I didn't believe God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have interest in the things of God. So you people have faith. You belong here in this. And I hopefully can illustrate that for you. Now there are four observations that I want to make about Hebrews 11. That hopefully will help us to understand this thing about faith. First of all, faith exists in the absence of absolute proof. If you had proof, you wouldn't need faith. It's just as simple as that. If, if everything was clear, visible, obvious, you wouldn't need faith. If you got prayed for and you were instantly healed, 
You don't need faith to be healed because you're healed now. And so, but faith is necessary because it exists in the absence of absolute faith. And so the Bible gives us this definition and then starts telling these stories and talks about guys like Noah. No, most people have heard of Noah, but don't derive your doctrine from the uh, crow film. What was this? You know, that... <laughs> Not exactly a good representation of it, I guess. But Noah was warned by God about an impending flood uh, and told you need to prepare for this flood and go build an ark. Now, the thing about this is like there wasn't any obvious evidence that there would going to be a flood. For instance, he didn't live near the Mississippi River, any major river that could flood or float something like this. He didn't live near a huge lake that could somehow... Oh, dam could break and overflow. He didn't live near the ocean. It was fairly arid and dry uh, where he is. And there was no evidence of a coming flood at all. The only thing he had was God said, there's going to be a flood. And so you need to build this big ship. And so Noah and his sons worked on this uh, ship month after month and year after year. And kind of like spent their life building this major uh, water going vessel which I'm sure would have captured the attention of lots of people. It's kind of like uh, the, the largest group of uh, the largest pile of uh, Baylor twine in Nebraska. A lot of tourists go there to see that. Or the largest pile of burlap bags in Minnesota. People go to see that. And uh, I made those up, guys. Don't, don't, go, don't, don't go Google that, please. But... So here you are, a guy who's building a huge boat in the middle of nowhere. is bound to attract some attention, and I'm sure he got a little ridicule from that. And uh, maybe the Chamber of Commerce was not pleased with what he was building there. Who knows? But I'm sure his kids thought he was a bit crazy, too. But faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then the Scripture talks about a guy named Abraham, and God spoke to him. And he was called of God to leave his home. And go to a place called Ur. Ur is a kind of backwoods place, area of Canaan. And God said, if you'll go there, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to give you this land as yours. You're going to possess it. And not only that, I'm going to, I'm going to give you kids. And you're going to become a great nation as a result. And you won't hardly be able to number them. It'd be like trying to count the stars at night. You'd lose count after a while. You just can't count them all. You're going to have big family like that and it'd be a great nation. And what evidence was there for Abraham to actually believe that? I mean, there wasn't any indication. It wasn't like his wife was very prolific at giving birth to lots of kids. It wasn't happening. And there was, he had no children whatsoever when he got this word. And he wasn't a young man either. So, yet Abraham had faith and he continued to believe that God would do what he said he would do. Faith is being sure of what you hope for. And certain of what you don't see. It's just not evident yet. You don't see it. Now, we believe that God created this universe and he made himself known to us. And we believe he also has been testified very beautifully here today in this baptism that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He did nothing wrong. He was sinless. And he's the Son of God who came to this earth and took our place and he died for our sins. And he rose on the third day and he, uh, and he ascended into heaven. 
and he's going to come back at the end of the age. And we believe this with all of our hearts. We believe it. But what evidence do you have that that's actually a true story? I mean, where's the scientific empirical evidence that that is actually the case? That's why you need faith. Faith to believe this is true. We have no absolute truth, proof, but we believe. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. Now, the people that got in that baptismal pool today, they're pretty certain. They're pretty certain. Now, I understand they're living with a reality of transformed life, for sure. But you can share that with someone. You could say, uh, I took these vitamins and it changed my life. I mean, there's all these personal testimonies that people can give about how their life was changed. Well, where's the evidence? Where's the empirical proof? Faith exists in the absence of absolute proof. That's why we need faith. The second thing we learned about this definition of faith is that faith can't exist without doubt. Now, I'm not commending you to be a doubter, but the fact is, is faith can exist without doubt. There has to be room for doubt in order for faith to exist. I'm going to illustrate this for you in just a minute. What would happen in a world if there was no room for doubt? So unless you want to, I'm going to help you understand what that world would look like. So let's create a world this morning in which there wasn't any room for doubt. And it would look like this. What if Jesus would visibly and periodically descend from heaven out of the clouds and speak to people and hold mass rallies and perform miracles and then he had to send back up to heaven. Maybe he'd do it once a year on the 4th of July. <laughs> we could shoot fireworks and all that. I mean, you couldn't deny it. Here he was. He did all these things, right? Well, what, what would be the result if when someone said, I don't believe God exists, God would suddenly pop into the room and says, what do you mean I don't exist? Oh, wow. I remember I used to pray that I, I had a friend that said he saw an angel years ago. I, I prayed that God let me see an angel too. And he sent me Linda. <laughs> Other than Linda, I never saw an angel. I mean, <laughs> she wasn't in the room in the first service, so they didn't get this one. What would be the result if, when we prayed, every time we prayed, instantly everyone was healed? It sounds good, but what would happen if, when making decisions, you couldn't decide what to do? God simply spoke in an audible voice. That would help me when I'm shopping with Linda. Which one do you like? But if God was, just show up and say, buy the red one. That would help me a lot. <laughs> or God would write on the wall or something. It would make life easier, I know. But what would happen if when we had doubts about our faith... God would send an angel and all of a sudden show up, put his arm around our shoulder, and we'd go, whoa. And assure us that 
of the reality of what we really believe. In this world in which there, we've created, in which there is no room for doubt. What would it be like if all Christian businessmen and businesswomen were successful? And never business went backwards for them. What, what, if, what if all the Christians were healthy and anyone else they prayed for would just get well all of a sudden? And if there were an epidemic, all the Christians would be spared. And, and if uh, the Christians were untouched by famine and war or robbery or violence, it just never happened to Christians. Might happen to non-Christians, but it didn't happen. In this world, without doubt, here's the question. Make you think, would your faith be strengthened? Of course not, because you wouldn't need faith. Faith would be unnecessary. Faith exists where there's doubt. Frederick Beeker said, when your faith, whether your faith is that there's a God Well, there is not a God. If you don't have any doubts, you're kidding yourself or asleep. Because doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it moving. Keep it awake. (laughs) So what about Abraham? Paul in Romans says that this is who Abraham is. He's quite a model. He's He's a father of all who have faith. In fact, half of Hebrews 11 actually is talking about Abraham because he's the father of all of those who have faith. And Abraham heard God's call to leave town and go to Canaan. And uh, the father, uh, he had faith in what God told him to do and that he would make him a great nation. And he have all these kids and he just become just a major enterprise. At the age of 86, it hadn't happened. He hadn't had kids yet. I have a lot of thoughts about that. But I'm only 69. Hey, he couldn't wait any longer. And so he and Sarah had a conversation. We know God's made these promises. We're going to have all these kids. And we're going to become a great nation. And she said, how about if we find a surrogate mother? Which would be Hagar, her handmaid. Which was fairly common practice in those days. And so... We can produce children through Hagar. So she was a surrogate. And she did get pregnant. Now he was 86. 13 years later, he's 99. And God pays him a visit and says, Hey, bud, the promise I made to you is not through Hagar, the surrogate. It's through your wife. Sarah, he's 99. She's there too. This is, this is tough. This is a tough story. And he's saying, <laughs> he struggled to understand how God was going to do this. And so he does what most of us do. When we feel like we're living with a promise of God and it doesn't seem to be happening and things seem to be delayed, we have a tendency to take matters into our own hands and help God get it done. Not the way it works. So 13 years later, God speaks to him. His heir is going to come through Sarah. And the amazing result is the birth of Isaac in their 90s, 99. Born to two old, 
over the hill past the age where things happen even in your dreams. Physically, you can't even dream that way anymore. Physically impossible. And then, it still takes faith to believe. Because though he did get the son, it's still only one kid. And remember, God said you're going to be a great nation and have the numbers uncountable. And then God does the unthinkable one day, says to him, Take Isaac up on the mountain. I want you to worship me. I want you to have a sacrifice. And Isaac is going to be the sacrifice. The one chance. Now, this is, this is a story, one of those stories in the Bible I don't like very much. It's really kind of hard to live with. I can only imagine what this is like. And he's there ready to do the sacrifice. And we all know the story. Wonderfully, God shows up when he lifts the knife and stops. But Abraham, all the turmoil he was going through, was still willing, somehow believing, well, if this is it, if Isaac is the answer, and I sacrifice him, God's able to raise him from the dead. Now, there, God, God's, these are people with feelings. You understand, they're not superheroes. They're like you and I. They would feel the same pain and difficulty and doubts and questioning whether they're hearing God, just like you and I. And how about Noah? Now, I, I'm convinced that Abraham had doubts. It's evident because of the surrogate mother thing. But then there's Noah. And he's been commissioned to build this boat where there's never been a flood. And it's about the half the size of a modern ocean liner. Fact is, you could have a football field on top of it with room for spectators. You could. That's it's just a huge thing. Him and his, his sons, they're set about their building this thing. And... I can imagine that he thought many days, this is crazy. I know this. I know how kids think. I know his kids thought he was crazy. And showing up building this boat to nowhere. What kind of a deal is that? I know there were doubts. Don't you think that with the ridicule, I know he got ridicule. Come on, I know what it's like. I've never built a boat, but I know what, I know that what happens there. At, and he, he received from his neighbors. He had to have doubts. Of course he had doubts. Moses, we know he struggled with doubts. And he, he was called by God to be the deliverer of his people. And he made some kind of an attempt and didn't turn out very well. And the Israel rejected him. And it was so serious. The rejection was so serious. And he kind of committed a crime in the process that he ran for his life. And he ran out into the wilderness where he hung out for 40 years. Now, he lived 40 years with this mandate from God that he was to be the deliverer of people, and I can tell you what, it, it died in him. And then one day there was a bush that burned, and it didn't burn. It just was on fire, but it never burned up. And it was God in the bush, and God talked to him to send him back to be a deliverer. And I know he had doubts, because he said, send somebody else. He didn't believe that he could be the guy who could do all that. So... In, when you read all of these stories, what about Joseph? He's in that book too. Joseph, this guy. He had promises from God. He had visions, dreams. He, had, uh, he told his brothers they didn't like it. They got mad at him. They thought they'd kill him. They threw him in a pit, and then they pulled him out of a pit, and they sold him to a caravan, and a caravan took him to Egypt, a far distant country, and he got sold into slavery there, and he got bought by a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife got her eye on him and tried to seduce him, and he did the honorable thing and rejected her, and she accused him anyway falsely, and he got thrown in prison where people die. You don't ever come out. 
and he's living with all of these promises. Don't you think he got depressed? Don't you think he had some doubts? He's human. See, you've got to look at these people as no different than you. He's human. Yeah, of course he had doubts. He had all of these doubts that would come. What made these men and women heroes of faith is that they pressed on despite the doubts, despite the struggling, and despite the difficulty. I, I've been a Christian for a long time. I have to tell you, I've had a lot of doubts. I've had what I thought was, I'm doing what God wants me to do, and things weren't turning out the way I thought they should. Or the way I understood what I felt God had told me to do. I had doubts. Of course, I'm over that now. I never have them anymore. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Of course. Doubts. Doubts. These people in Hebrews 11, we tend to make them something they're not. Like unfeeling robots or something. Super faith people. No. They're just like you and I. They lived with those doubts. They struggled with difficulty. When you and I continue on in spite of doubts, there's really victory in God's kingdom. And our faith grows. It seems like when things are most impossible, that you're living with a promise, that you've somehow attempted to obey God. In the midst of all of that, our faith grows when there is doubt. When Jubilee Church was started, uh, a group of really wonderful people who had been trying to plant a church in St. Louis wanted to know if we would come and, and lead them and, and restart kind of this church. And we agreed to do that. We agreed to do it. We appreciated the invitation, but primarily because we felt God told us to come to St. Louis. We didn't know to start a church, and we didn't know how it would happen, and this seemed like the right thing, an opportune thing. And we sold our house, and we bought another house, and then I got a phone call. And the phone call from this group, please understand they're, they're wonderful people, but they decided that having me come was not a very good idea. And said to me, before I ever got here, we don't want you to come. You think I had a few doubts? You think I didn't go back and say, God, was this your idea? Yep, I sure did. I remember some of my friends calling me and saying, what are you going to do? And I said, we're going to St. Louis. Well, why? They don't want you. What are you going to do? We're going to St. Louis. Why? Well, because God called us to St. Louis. It's important to know. That God has called you to do what you're supposed to do. You're here, aren't you? But I had doubts. Doubt is fertile soil for faith. It's, and I'm going to explain how that works out practically. So I don't want you to lose that thought. Faith exists in the absence of absolute proof. And faith cannot exist without doubt. 
Third thing I want to say to you about faith is that faith does not necessarily do impressive things. When you think about Abraham, what he did, that appears pretty impressive. And Noah, believing God to spend his life building this boat on dry land, that seems pretty impressive. But did you know in this chapter, with equal billing, are a whole lot of people that didn't do very much. It was impressive. And yet, they're there with kind of equal billing, you see. Because it also includes guys like Abel and Enoch and Rahab. And they made the list. Well, what grand thing did they do? Well, we understand these big guys like Noah and Abraham, they did some pretty grand things. But what about these other guys? What did Abel do to be included in the list in Hebrews 11? This should encourage you. The scripture says, he offered to God a sacrifice. And he got in. He's commended for his faith. Now, <laughs> isn't that what you do? In a little bit, we're going we're to give us an opportunity to worship God with our giving. And you're going to give some money. And you, you, you want to give to the Lord. And some of you do this weekly. And some of you do it online. And some of you do it monthly or whatever. But you, some of you even sit down and, and budget for the year for that. And you're going to give money. You set aside money for the Lord. Isn't that offering God a sacrifice? See? You're Hebrews 11 people. And... That's what he did. And it hardly seems earth-shaking, but it's listed as evidence of someone who believes God. And then, what about Isaac and Jacob? These are colorful characters. Isaac was married to a woman who manipulated him and fooled him. And she had a favorite son, and she preferred him. And in those days, it was interesting. The blessing went from dad to the oldest son. But his wife had a favorite, which was the younger one. And she dressed him up and made him smell like and glued some hair on him and all that. Like he was the oldest son because, you see, Isaac was blind. And he'd come in for his blessing. It's one of those things that's irretrievable. You, it's like getting the inheritance. It's there. And he blessed them. This was kind of a messed up family. And Jacob was the guy who got blessed in this. But he's portrayed as a deceiver and as a cheater. And what happened is the older brother who didn't get the blessing was an avid hunter and scary. So Jacob, who was the kitchen guy, ran away. He met a guy named Laban who had a beautiful daughter. And he just got his eyes fixed on her and he wanted her really bad. The only problem is she was younger than an older sister. And so Laban made a deal with him. So I'll tell you what, you want the younger one. You know, we're breaking protocol here. Well, I'll make you a deal. You work for me for seven years and then I'll, I'll break protocol. Okay. And he did. He worked for Laban. And they got married. And they wore all these veils and things in those days. And the next morning after the wedding night, and the sun's shining, and there's no more veil, he recognizes that Laban pulled a switcheroo on him. 
and he married the wrong girl. He married the older one. He still wanted the young one. So they made another deal. And he worked for him another bunch of years to get the younger one. Now he's got two wives. You talk about messed up. <laughs> I'm sorry to spend all this time on this story. I didn't mean to. I just got carried away imagining all that was like. He paid the price of having two wives, I can tell you that. And uh, they had maidservants, and they had all these kids by the maidservants and all these wives, and it was a family in turmoil. And there's a whole list. When you go through the, these people in Hebrews, there's a whole list of weaknesses and mistakes and faults that they had. And they got in. They got in because by faith, they believed God to bless their kids. That's how they got in. And there's Joseph. He did many things. And he got sold into slavery. And when when he's, he's praised for his faith, what did he do? He wasn't praised because of his achievements. He was an amazing entrepreneur and businessman. He had all this great uh, organizational skills. He had all of these traits that you would think would somehow be praised. But he wasn't praised for any of those things. He was praised because he made a statement, which was, one day... The nation Israel, which would be in bondage to Egypt, would get out and they would go free. And when you guys leave town, I'll be dead by then. But I want you to dig up my bones and take me with you. And that's what he's commended for. He got in. Now, there's a little bit more to it than that. Basically, what he's saying is, I believe God has a plan and purpose for my family and people. And I'm going to die before that happens. But when it happens... I want you to take me with you because I still want to go on and be a part of that. I'm just saying, not everyone in the book of Hebrews did all these grandiose things. They made a sacrifice. They blessed their kids. They believed God had a plan for their family and even though they were going to die before it finished, take me with you. Dig me up. I want to go with you. And you know, someone else got in there. She was a colorful character. Her name was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And she's in there. And what did she do? Well, when two spies came over from Israel to spy out the city, she somehow believed God was with them. And that they were going to take the city. And she made a decision to hide them. Because she believed these two guys. And she got in. Can I just say, faith is not necessarily you thinking about somebody doing something amazingly spectacular. It's just an ordinary aspect of life. You decide to believe God. You get it? And they all got in. They all were there in Hebrews 11. So faith exists in the absence of absolute proof, and we know faith exists where there's doubt, and we know faith does not necessarily do impressive things. It just simply obeys God. That's what faith is. It's just doing what God tells you to do. And the last thing about faith, I'd say, is that it puts its eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. 
John White, who was a Canadian writer, he said, faith is man's response to God's initiative. Do not look inside yourself and ask, how much faith do I have? And you know, you hear a lot of that these days. Don't do that. Look to God and ask, what is he saying to me and what would he have me to do? Because that's all faith is. Is what is God saying to me and what would he have me do? Years ago, uh, I was... I suffered horribly from manic depression. I mean, debilitating depression for many years. My mother was a, uh, in bed most of her, my growing up years with depression. And uh, I, w- I, was, I was a pastor, and, but I was still as horrible. I'm in the darkness of, of depression like that. And uh, we were in a church service. And I had some people in our church with us, and they all knew I was depressed. It was obvious. And a guy preached a simple message on discouragement and offered an invitation for people to be discouraged. I wasn't discouraged. I was depressed. But I felt eyes on me. My wife, other people, they were concerned. They wanted me to go up and get prayed for the Bible says that if there's any sick among you, just call upon the elders of the church and be prayed for. I didn't feel, uh, that's why I know faith is not an emotion. We say, I feel faith for this. No, it's not really an emotion. It's an act of obedience. And I went forward to please my wife and people who were concerned for me. I'm talking about years of darkness here. I've never been depressed since. I have normal depression. (laughs) When someone takes my parking place or something like that. (laughs) Faith is simple obedience. It's looking to Jesus and obeying him. It's not about what I can do to get God to do for me what I think I want him to do for me. It's what God says he wants to do, and I obey him. I was healed. Are you sick? Get prayed for. Get prayed for. It's just simple obedience. That's true faith. God called Abraham, Abel to offer a sacrifice. And what did Abel do? He offered a sacrifice. God told Noah to build a boat. What did he do? He built a boat. God said, Abraham, move, and he moved. It's that simple. I don't know how to say this without seeming indelicate in some way. But God told Abraham to have a baby with Sarah. And he was 99. And she was in her 90s too. Past the age. I don't know how this happened, but he obeyed. God told Moses, hold your staff over the Red Sea. And he did it. He didn't go to school on how to part the Red Sea. He just, God said, hold your stick over there. Okay. <laughs> 
God told Israel, we're going to take the city of Jericho, and this is how we're going to do it. I want you to walk around town for seven days, seven times. And that doesn't appear to be a very logical strategy, but they did. Peter did not think to himself, I think now I've built up enough faith in Jesus. I have enough faith that I can go water walking. He didn't do that. He simply obeyed Jesus. Peter, come on. He got out of the boat and he walked. It's always that way. You see, the focus is Jesus. It's about God, his calling, and what he says. And if God speaks to you and says, why don't you share with your workmate, your neighbor, your relative, about what Jesus has done in your life, there's a tendency for all of us to think, oh, I, I, I'm not good at witnessing. I don't know the right words. What if they ask me a question I can't answer? Why, what, why is there suffering in the world? And, and you can go through all this. No, it's not about that. It's not about you. It's about what does God ask you to do? And you just do that. Now, this is important, what I'm telling you, for a couple of reasons. One is there's a lot of bad theology about faith. And you can kind of get your eyes on superstars. Somehow they've got more going with God than you do. And so if anyone's going to pray for me, those people over there praying for me, are any of them ordained? I want the pastor praying for me. I want Brian praying for me. No, you don't. (laughs) I better stop. He's got a microphone in his hand. How much faith does it take? The scripture says faith size of a mustard seed. Just using this as an example to show us. Is enough to move a mountain. It's not like, I'm full of faith and power. It's not about that. It's just doing what God has spoken to you to do. And the second reason it's important is that it's always God calling and that we obey so that we take our eyes off ourselves and our eyes are placed on Jesus. We think in terms, do I have faith? I think you might have more faith than me. I don't have enough faith. It's not about you. If you could just get your eyes off yourself. If I, if I just prayed harder and I fasted and I'd, I'd read more scripture and I could have more faith. And your focus is on you. It's not about that. It's simply responding to what God said. What's God saying to you? It's responding to what he says. God told us uh, when this church was in a building in Webster Groves, Tuxedo, and Bonaparte to leave that building. And he would put us in a visible place. And so we put the building up for sale. We felt God told us to do that. This church has been led that way from its very inception. And the building didn't sell because, you know, you have to wait. And then it's hard to sell a church building because it's a single purpose building. And that's what that was. And uh, then one day we were in prayer and it was like God said, I thought I told you to leave. I went, well, yeah, we're responding. We have the building for sale. That's not, I didn't say when the building sells. And so we started, uh, we, we started renting places. So we rented in Eden Seminary for a while. We, we went to a school auditorium. We were moving around quite a lot. And we ended up in Orlando Gardens. And that meant every Sunday morning we had to pack up everything and unpack all the sound equipment and set up all the children's work. And it was a lot of work. 
And then after the Sunday meeting was over, we had to pack everything up and haul it away. And people were thinking, why are we doing this? We've got a perfectly good building down the street and everything was all set up down there. I know it doesn't make sense. But we did it because we felt that's what God was saying to us. And God said other things along the way. But here we are. And simply a result of not great things, just focusing on Jesus. What does he say to do? And that's what I do. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Faith is just fixing your eyes on Jesus. What's he saying for you to do? He prompts you to share Jesus with your neighbor. Just do it. If he he prompts you to, to mow your neighbor's grass, well, just do it. If, he, if you're sick, the scripture says, get prayer. Get prayer. It's not anything else but just that simple, simple thing. Don't be trapped in the spiritual introspection. Don't think you have to get so much faith. Don't think you have to find a professional preacher or some professional Christian to be the one who actually can be effective in prayer in your life. Your focus is on the wrong thing. Focus ought to be on Jesus.